All right, this week we're in the book of Habakkuk, and if you're new with us, we are walking through a season this entire summer throughout the month of August in the Minor Prophets, and we're walking through a a minor group of people that had a major message primarily directed towards the nation of Israel, and today Habakkuk is pretty unique in the sense that um, he, he doesn't have a message, he has a conversation with God, and God uses that conversation as a message to the people. I think this is really important to understand. You don't always have to have a sermon to have a message. You understand that, right? You don't have to come up here and do this to have a message or a testimony or a work of God that he's done in your life. In fact, one of the best Christians that I know has never preached a sermon, and this guy is a soul-winning machine. He cuts down trees for a living. He is an evangelist. He serves at his church. He is just, he has such a joy, such a life about him. And he is a Habakkuk. He is not someone who's going to preach a sermon. He just lives one every single day. And he brings these gruff, tough lumberjacks to church. And he's standing next to them, worshiping. He's praying over them and he's encouraging them. And this is a man who lives a sermon. We have to understand there is nothing more important about me than there is about you of whether or not you come up here and preach or I preach. I believe God's graced all of us differently. So my grace happens to be preaching. Your grace can be in something else. That doesn't mean our messages are more important one or the other. In fact, your message is just as important because you can go places that I can't go. And you're in proximity with people that I'm not in proximity with. And you have an ability because of your story to share with people that would never listen to a word I say. Try showing up to a party and telling everyone you're a pastor. Does not work. Does not work at all. Doesn't land, right? But you can. Maybe. Hopefully. But you have a message, okay? So, Habakkuk. All right, here's what I'm going to do. Guys, I'm going to skip the first. We're going to read, essentially, the entire book. Um, So, I usually start off with a passage of Scripture. No need, because we will cover everything. Um, here's, Here's Habakkuk's message. What do we do when everything's going wrong? That's, that's his question. In fact, the structure of the book is a little unique. We're going to break the algorithm again this week, and we're going to go with what Habakkuk goes with. He asks God two questions, and he lands on one solution. And his two questions revolve around this. What do I do when everything is going wrong, when nothing makes sense, when the wrong people are prospering, when bad nations are rising up and prospering, when God is using sinners What do I do with all of this? None of this makes sense. What do we do when things aren't going well? This week, we are doing something I thought we would never do again that we used to do annually, and that is a two-day trip to Galveston. Parents with kids, this is never a great idea, right? It is, my wife is a seven on the Enneagram, which means it is like adventure now, think about it later, She's just like, she literally will look at me and say, hey, I've got a great idea for today. Nothing scares me more when when she says that. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. She's like, I have the best idea in the world. I'm like, oh, Lord, no, no. Like, not not on a Saturday. She's like, we can do a beach day. 
Let's do it. I'll pack the car now. We'll leave in 15 minutes. We'll swing by and get snacks. It'll be great. Like three hours later, we've packed enough for two weeks, and we're going for two hours. The van is full. The kids are crying. Anna and I are arguing with each other. We get in the car. There's traffic, right? So then we get stuck in traffic, and what was supposed to be this beautiful, fun beach day, we get there at 4.30, eat a burger at Michael Burger, turn around and drive back home. I was like, why do we do this? What? It's because of you. You're the fun one. I just follow. I'm an eight. I'm the eight hole around here. I'm just angry and mad. I'm like, I'm not doing that. Nope, not a good idea. Haven't thought it through. I'm not willing to be a part of it, right? Like, she is, the, oh, this will be so fun. So she gives me a couple weeks in advance, and she said, babe, here's what I think we should do in a couple of weeks. I think we should go on a trip to Galveston together. And I'm like, okay, uh, we'll do it, right? Now, mind you, I mean, let me think here. First of all, the, the first time we went, I actually wrote them down because PTSD has caused me to black them out of my mind. Um, oh, the first time we did the, the Galveston trip, Zion was ter- I, I literally packed my daughter's crib in the back of my truck, snapped, strapped it down, drove all the way down. We get to the beach house, we get out. Zion was so terrified of the house, she wouldn't sleep in it. At 1 a.m. in the morning, I was driving her back to our house, get back to our house, put her in her bed, sleeps like an angel, wake up in the morning, drive back down again, hang out with the family at the beach. Midnight, I drive her back. Like, that was me, the first Galveston trip. You would think we learned. No, we didn't. We go back again, and one of my children gets incredibly sick, throws up, in that time we had a suburban, throws up on my mom that was sitting next to them, and then throws up all over themselves, all over the floor. I, I spent two days at the beach in the sun, scrubbing carpet, cleaning a car seat, cleaning out the entire car, packed it up, still stunk with the windows down and vinegar everywhere, got home. That was the second time. You'd think we'd learn. No. In fact, my wife got an even better idea. She bought a toddler's car toilet on Amazon. Why? <laughs> like, what even? Like, where does it? <laughs> this is not the 1800s. We're not in, like, horse and buggy with no gas stations, no coffee shops, no bathrooms in sight, right? Like, this is not the Oregon Trail. But yet we buy this toilet that goes in the car for toddlers, and of course, this kid screams out, poo-poo. One of my kids says, poo-poo. And Anna was like, yes, I get to use it. It's like, it's time. I'm like, there's a gas. That- no, 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 let's use So we put it up in the back of the car, and the child climbs back there. And I'll just spare you the details, <laughs> but it was bad. <laughs> like, whole car, what in the world? Pull over. There's this raceway gas station, okay? And... I pull off at the Raceway gas station. I, it, it, the, the little inside thing comes out, right? It's like the little insert that they go into, and I, I take it out. And I am the one who's disposing of this. And I walk out, and I'll never forget this. This is when I swore I'd never do Galveston again. And I'm walking out there, and I go to throw it out. And there is this, like, front curvature on the thing, right, that they sit in. And it was just, like, the perfect angle to send that in a backward boomerang right at me. Now, I'm athletic, so I got the top half out of the way, but as I'm bailing, all over my leg, I'm covered in stuff. Thank you. (laughs) Covered in stuff. 
I walk back to the car like this, and I am so mad. And she's like, baby, ready to go? And I'm like, no! I'm covered in stuff. And I got that little, you know, the, the, the glass cleaning thing? And I'm literally sitting there scrubbing my leg, taking their paper towels. And I got in the car, and I looked at my wife, and I said, we will never do Galveston again. Ever. I've had my limit. So guess what we're doing this week? We're going to Galveston, right? And so Anna and I have this conversation. Last night, we're in the car. We had just got our kids' food. Everyone's going nuts. And Anna looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, this has been 30 minutes, and the car's insane. Are we really driving two hours to Galveston next week? And she said, yeah. And she said, what are we going to do when things go bad? <laughs> it's like we already know, right? You don't have that kind of track record and then just expect a perfect trip. She's like, what are we going to do when things go bad? And we agreed on two things. Number one, we're going to stay a team. Number one, no matter what, it's not me versus you. It's not this was your idea or I didn't want to do this in the first place or why are we doing this or you bought the toddler toilet or anything like that. Like, we're we're going to stay a team. We're a team. It's Luke and Anna to the end. Nothing's going to stop us. We're going to make this happen, right? We will persevere. Number one, we're a team. Number two, we will continually remind ourselves this trip is not about us. This trip is not about us. This trip has nothing to do with us. This is about our kids getting to build a sandcastle and getting to eat good food and eat Oreos for dinner and everything. Like This is, this is not about us. This is about our kids. Number one, we're going to stay a team. Number two, we're going to continually remind ourselves this is not about us. This is not about my comfort, not about my luxury, not about my fun. This is about our kids. When I think about the book of Habakkuk and Habakkuk's message, here is essentially what Habakkuk is saying. Number one, what do I do when things go bad? Because things are going to go bad. So he asks two questions, and then he lands on this solution. Here's the solution. I'm going to stay faithful. That's number one, we're going to be a team. Me and God, we're a team. I'm going to be faithful. And number two, and God drives this home. How many of you know this? Not everything to do with your faith has to do with you. It's not all about you. It's not all about your comfort. It's not all about my comfort. It's not all about me having the time that I want and enjoying everything that I want. Sometimes God does things in spite of us. God does things outside of us. And God does things we can't see through people we would have never imagined. And guess what? It's still under God's control. That's the message of Habakkuk. So, Let's jump in. Number one, he starts with his first question. Let me give you some context first, really quick. Habakkuk is prophesying at the time of like 605 BC, right after the first Babylonian invasion of Judah, okay? So we talked about this last week, right? The Assyrians took over Judah, Babylon comes and crushes them. That just happened, okay? Right after that happens, King Josiah rises up, and King Josiah leads reforms. In fact, in 2 Kings, what is it? 23, 25, it says, never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him. So Judah gets invaded. 
Judah gets decimated. Josiah rises up. He leads reforms in Judah. They all start following God. Josiah dies. His two sons take over, and they lead two generations of chaos. They completely rebel, worse than before, worse than the former days, and they're back on the train of rebellion again. And here's the problem. They're rebelling, and they're prospering. Everything's going great. They are living the most ungodly, sinful lives that they can live, and they're making money. Everything's going well. There's peace in the land. They're prospering, and Habakkuk is looking at the situation. Imagine this. This is, this is kind of our context for Habakkuk. He is standing there looking at Judah and Samaria, the nation of Israel, broken to two pieces, and he is saying, what on earth is happening? Bad people are getting good things. Bad nations are prospering. And here I am and everything's going wrong and I just don't see an end in sight. What is happening? He does it in two questions, one solution. Here we go. First question, Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. How long, O Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Violence is Everywhere I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. So Habakkuk opens with a question, God, what on earth is happening? The wrong people are winning. The wrong people are prospering. The wrong things are getting the right results. Like, I don't know what to do about this. What do you have to say about it? Here's God's answer, Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. The Lord replied, look around at the nations, look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and do whatever they like. Their horses are swifter than cheetahs and fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their charioteers charge from far away. Like eagles, they swoop down to devour their prey. And he continues on in this narrative of, I am doing something you can't see. Habakkuk's question is, why on earth are the wrong people prospering? And God's answer is, I'm doing something you can't see, and I'm doing something you wouldn't even believe if I told you. Here's what God is doing. God is inviting Habakkuk into a place of faith. He's inviting Habakkuk. When Habakkuk is saying, why is this happening and how are they prospering? He's saying, you may not believe me, but I'm doing something you can't see right now. Can you trust me? He's inviting him into faith. What is faith? I think we need to recap this. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In other words, Faith is what you cannot see right now. Let me, let me put it this way. The greatest area of growth you have is in what you cannot see right now. 
when you don't know what is next. That's your greatest area of growth. Here's the difference. Faith is when you can't see it. Obedience is when you can. And there is a massive difference in the two, right? Faith is the assurance of what we're hoping for. I can't see it, therefore I'm trusting God as I step into it. Obedience is God has shown me and I will do what God says. Here's the difference, and this is the challenge that most people face. A lot of people want to be obedient, but nobody wants to take a step of faith to get there. It's really, it's really, really easy to say, God, I'll do whatever you tell me. What if God says, I'm not going to tell you? You choose. You take the step of faith. That's, I, that's me. Time of confession, I am the guy, I'm probably really good at obedience and really bad at faith because I'm the guy who says, God, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will serve you in whatever capacity you want me to sell everything I own and move to Africa right now. Do it. You want me to do this? You want me to do that? I will do whatever it is. I just need you to tell me. That's all that I need. That's not faith. That's obedience. That's saying, God, give me the answers and I'll do exactly what you say. God, and and here's the problem, faith precedes obedience. So if you want to be obedient, you have to be willing to take the step of faith. That's what the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 is about. In fact, he gives over and over the example of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Moses, Rahab. They all did what they couldn't see. That's faith. We want to see it and then we'll do it. That's obedience. And obedience is great. But obedience without faith, you just stay stuck. God, show me, God, show me, God, show me. God's not going to show you everything. God's not going to answer every one of your questions. All day. He's going to put you in a position to trust him with what you can't see to take the step. That is the invitation. The first invitation with Habakkuk is this. I know you see them prospering, and I know you see everything falling apart, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. You wouldn't even believe me if I did, but do you have faith with what you cannot see? One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid, Indiana Jones. Anybody? Come on. Indiana Jones, where are we at? You college students don't even know what you're missing. Oh, we got one. Caleb, okay, great. Praise God, you're cultured, you're educated, you're learned. I love that. Um, Indiana Jones and MacGyver. Any MacGyver, not the new one. Not the corny new one. I'm talking about the old one. MacGyver and Indiana Jones. And what I love, Indiana Jones is on... The last crusade, and he is searching for the Holy Grail. His dad was a Holy Grail scholar, and his dad is dying. And in order to save his dad, he's got to find the Holy Grail. So he's navigating all of this chaos. And it is this iconic moment in a movie where he comes up to this huge gap, and he knows the Holy Grail's on the other side. And he's sitting there, and he's contemplating to himself, and he's reading his dad's journal, and he's read through all of the notes that his dad's made. And he's like, there's no way a man could jump this. And then he remembers. It requires a leap of faith. Guys, do you have it? Impossible. Nobody can jump this. Ah! Indy! And you must hurry! Come quickly!
All right, movie critics, what's he do next? What's he do? Grab some rocks. He takes the rocks in the sand and he throws it down and then he can see the path, right? That's obedience. But what does it take to get to obedience? I want to do it right now. I want to do it right now. <laughs> you catching me? <laughs> I mean, like that's what it takes. That's what he's inviting you back again to. He doesn't say I'm going to give you all the answers. He says, will you take the step? And if you take the step, then I will reveal to you and you can walk in obedience to it. There are some things in our life that require the step of faith and you're committed to the obedience to it, but you're not willing to take the step. You'll never know the end. You'll never know the answer and you'll never know the result, but you can trust God either way. That's the invitation of faith. The moment you see it, it's obedience. But the moment right before is faith, and that's the invitation. What do we do when everything is going crazy and we can't understand what is happening? We walk in faith, not by sight. Question number two. So Habakkuk follows this up because remember, God said, I'm going to raise up Babylonians and they're going to destroy uh, the people of Judah. Habakkuk 1, 12 through 17. Oh, my Lord, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Oh, Lord, our rock, have, you have sent the Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Isn't that interesting? Should you be silent while they're wicked, swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods which have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest. This is really interesting. So he asks him a question, why are the wicked prospering? And God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. His second question is what? Why would you use wicked people? Like what? You're going to do what? You're going to make even worse people win? Like why would you raise up wicked people after? So then Habakkuk has this emo moment where he like goes up on top of this watchtower and the wind is blowing, breeze in his hair, and he's just looking out and he's like, I will wait till God answers me, right? So he's, he's having this dashboard confessionals like, speak to me, I'm lost. And, don't. and here's, here's what happens. Habakkuk 2, 1 through 14. Here he is. I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint, right? He's like, oh, you want to use bad people. Why would you do that? And here's what God says. Then the Lord said to me, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. The vision is for a future time. It describes the end. It will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. What do we do if we're waiting for a vision? Wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Wealth is treacherous and the arrogant are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the graves and like death, they are never 
satisfied. He continues on with an indictment down to verse 13. He says, has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but all in vain. Verse 14, for as the water fills the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. Interesting. Habakkuk says, why would you use bad people? Like, what would you even do that for? And God says, everything is under my hand for my glory. Everything, just like the water fills the sea, everything will return to me for glory. Everything will. That's why I love Colossians 1.16. Paul declares this, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Again, in Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you realize that God is so much bigger than the righteous little box that we put him in? Habakkuk's saying, well, why would you use those people? They're not good people. And God's saying, everything returns to me like water in the ocean for my glory. Everything comes back to me for glory. I think this is interesting. When we're kids, we have this massive view of God, right? He's a big, big God. I don't know the rest of the song. And we, we have this view of God. He's really, really big, right? And then as we grow older, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller until the point where if we can't rationalize him, we can't trust him. If we can't understand what he's doing and he's not giving us the answers and it doesn't make rational sense to me, well, then there's no way that I could trust this. And yet he's saying to Habakkuk, don't you realize good, bad, or in between, it will all return to me for glory? Don't you realize that? We get so hung up on, oh, the bad people are winning. The bad people are winning. The Democrats, I hear that all the time. Like, since when? What are you, what are you so worried about? Do I need to stay there for a minute? Like, look, I, 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 I'm a conservative guy. I vote biblical values, right? Hear me when I say that. But I've never seen Christians act more faithless than during election time. If we don't win, we're all going to die. No, since when? I'm going to do a season when we near election time on the persecution and politics that Jesus experienced in his day. If you think this is bad, I had somebody come to me and say, well, brother, now that we're all being persecuted, What? They're killing Christians in West Africa right now, like dragging them out of churches and murdering them. That ain't happening to me. Nobody's persecuting me. Nobody's shutting my mouth. Nobody's coming in here putting a gun down my throat telling me, don't talk about Jesus or we're killing you. Like, that, that's not persecution. We have no clue what persecution is. We live the most comfortable, free lives you could ever live, and we get so wound up over watching the wrong news channel. Okay, I'm done. But here, here's what... Here's what you need to hear. God is saying, don't you realize I can work in the midst of this? Like, don't you realize I'm so much bigger than this? I'm so much more powerful than this? I had a friend who is a pastor in South Africa. His name's Hilton Apollos, but they don't use H's there. His name Hilton. Pastor Hilton was his name. And he had a guy walk into his church one morning who was a well-known drug dealer and well-known criminal in town. And he walked up to him and he, told, he thought he was going to kill him. He was like, this guy's come to kill me. And he said, I I've been feeling guilty lately and I saw your feeding program that you're doing and I feel like I need to give God some money. 
money, and he hands him a duffel bag, and inside of the duffel bag was 250,000 U.S. dollars. That's 4 million South African rand. Hands him a duffel bag for it. You know what he did? I couldn't believe this. He said, I looked at him, and I said, I cannot receive that, brother. That is not of the Lord. And he handed him back the duffel bag. <laughs> he really did. And then you know what he did? And he's, he's telling me this in the form of a lesson. He said, so I gave it back to him, and I thought, praise God, I did, the, I did the right thing. I did the righteous thing, and I honored the Lord with it. He said, and then I woke up the next morning, and I opened up my prayer journal, and for one month, I'd been praying for God to give us the greatest financial breakthrough our ministry's ever experienced. He's like, wow, I thought that was odd. And then I opened my Bible to read my Bible, and in Genesis 50, it said God told them to take what was meant for evil and use it for good. And he said, then I realized something. I need to go find that drug dealer. <laughs> I need to go find it. Listen, and I mean, and, and let the record stay. If you're a drug dealer feeling guilty today, you're in the right church, baby. <laughs> you are in the right place, right? But he's telling me this, and here's what he said. He said, I had put God in such a small, self-righteous box that I didn't think that he could use people who were against him to finance his mission. Like, I just, I was thinking so small, and then I realized that it was everything I had been asking God for, just not in the fashion that I was expecting to receive it, right? You know that God can answer your prayers in ways you're not expecting. You know that God can orchestrate things through people that you don't assume, through situations that you're not expecting, through places that you would have never imagined, yet God can take those and use them for his glory. So Habakkuk's second question is, well, why would you use the Babylonians? And God says, as water fills the ocean and comes back to the shore, everything is coming back for my glory. Leads us to Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk chapter 3, he rolls into this prayer, and in this prayer, he gives such a great message of what it looks like then for us to walk through this. Habakkuk's prayer is this. Uh, it's the whole chapter of Habakkuk. I'll break it down into three parts. Habakkuk, th Habakkuk 3, 1 through 2. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I wonder if he's still on top of the watchtower. It makes the emo moment even better, right? Gets his answer, sings the prayer. He says, verse 2, I've heard all about you, Lord. I'm filled with awe by your amazing works in this time of deep need. Help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. I think it's great. He starts his prayer not trying to control the narrative, not trying to manipulate the outcome by simply recognizing his situation. He says, God, I realize we're in a time of trouble, and I just need your mercy. God, we're in a time of trouble, and I need your mercy. And then he continues, Habakkuk 3, 3 through 15, I see God moving across the desert from Edom, the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens, and the earth is filled with his praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from his hands, where his awesome power is hidden. Pestilence marches before him. Plagues follows his 
plague follows close behind. When he stops, the earth shakes. When he, lo- when he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the entire hills. He is the eternal one. I see the people of Kashan in distress, the nations of Midian trembling in fear. Was it, was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? No, you were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. And he continues on through the next few verses of this narrative. And if you catch what he's doing, he's reciting Israel's history to God. And he's telling him, I remember your victories. I remember your victories when you parted the sea. I remember when the Midianites ran for their lives. I remember when you came up over the mountain and rescued the the Israelites when they were being persecuted. I remember these things. The second thing he does, he recognizes the situation, and then he remembers God's past victories. He's saying to himself, I remember how victorious you were. And then he lands here, Habakkuk 3, 18 through 19. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. So what do we do when ungodly people are prospering and sinners are winning? What do we do? Habakkuk just told us in Habakkuk 3. He said, number one, recognize your situation. Number two, remember God's past victories. And number three, rejoice in your salvation. I remember, I've told you guys a lot about my testimony, radically saved, dad spent half my adult life in prison, uh, was just a rebellious punk kid, always in trouble, got kicked out of school in the seventh grade, and then Jesus radically transformed my heart in high school. What I haven't shared with you is, is the years that followed that. So after I get radically saved in high school, I quit running around partying and doing everything that all my friends were doing, and so I basically lost all my friends. So I remember my senior year, I, I still had friends, but nobody invited me to the barn parties. I grew up in like the woods of Kansas, right? There was nothing to do but drink beer, smoke weed, and go to barns. That's all they did. Like, right? So that's all my friends ever did, and that's all we grew up running around doing. And then all of a sudden, I get saved, and I give my heart to Jesus, and I'm going to FCA, and I'm praying before meals at lunch, and they're like, what has happened to this guy? And so I had no friends really my entire senior year, and I remember there were moments of just like pure loneliness in the Lord. I remember what used to be the greatest night of the week, Friday night after the football game, and then all my friends would go party, and I would go home, and I'd be like, man, am I missing it? Are the wicked prospering, right? Are all my friends partying? And then I, I graduate from high school, and I had an opportunity to play baseball at the same community college. that all, I had eight friends that all went to live together to play football at a community college, and I was going to go play baseball there, and I just thought to myself, I can't live in that environment or I'll go back to those things. So I went to a different school to play baseball, and that was when Facebook had just come out. So yeah, Facebook wasn't even, it wasn't even existed when I was in high school, right? I didn't have a cell phone until after my senior year, right? My seven-year-old kid's like, Dad, I need a phone. All my friends have one. I'm like, heck no, right? You're crazy. I didn't have one until I graduated. So I remember getting Facebook, and I remember seeing on Facebook all my old friends. They got an apartment together. They had this house together. It was always drinking and partying and chasing girls and having all this fun, and I was alone. And I remember thinking to myself, have I missed it? Why are they having so much fun? And I'm not. 
and I'm alone, and I'm stuck here, right? And, and yet, I just remember thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm just going to be faithful. The Lord's rescued me in salvation. I'm going to rejoice in being saved, and I'm going to hope this all turns around. You know, from, that was like 20 years ago. From that time until now, five of the eight of them, I was counting it up last night, five of the eight of them have reached out to me, be it on social media, shoot me a text, text email, email me at the church email or something. Five out of the eight of them have reached out and said, since college, my life has been a disaster. Dude, I see you're a pastor now. Saw that one coming senior year. Hey, I need to talk to you. My wife and I are getting a divorce. Bro, you're a pastor. Holy smokes. That's really cool. Hey, uh, I'm having suicidal thoughts. I don't know what to do with my life. And I, I look back over that. And look, that's, that's no compliment to me. I went through a really tough time where I thought I was alone and I thought the wicked were prospering and I thought every situation I was being left out and I had no friends because I started following Jesus and Jesus, I didn't know you would do this to me. And now I'm looking back at it and I see my beautiful children and I see my incredible wife and I say to myself, thank God I was willing to have faith in a time where nothing made sense. Thank God I was willing to have faith. Thank God I was willing to just recognize my situation, to rejoice in the Lord and salvation, to just turn to him and say, God, I trust you, even when all of this doesn't make sense. And in the end, as he says to Habakkuk, it's like the ocean returning to the sand. Everything comes back around for my glory. 